Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, February 3rd, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us for the first time, commentary contributor, editor at large at Tablet, co-host of the Unorthodox Podcast, and all-around genius... Liel Leibovitz. Hi, Liel. I've been waiting a long time to say this. Shalom, John. <laughs> Shalom to you, too. Now, I should point out before we begin uh, that um, we could have had Liel on any time this week because his first piece for commentary, our cover story, um, a couple of months ago was called uh, No Jews Aren't White. And obviously that... Um, that has been a matter of some uh, discussion over the course of the last week uh, in the Whoopi Goldberg dust-up. Uh, Liel, quick thoughts, if you haven't yet expressed them, on this very question of the white-on-white crime that was well, the I'm Holocaust? Just, I'm just disappointed that, you know, that Rebbitz and Goldberg is no longer on The View because ignorant, inflamed, stupid thoughts are what I go to The View for. <laughs> what would I do now? It's a, well, you know, just go to tw- just go to Twitter and read the public health authorities. Um, by the way, I hope everybody saw that uh, uh, Los Angeles is Los Angeles Mayor Gil Garcetti explaining uh, his photograph with uh, Magic Johnson, following along the photograph of Magic Johnson taken uh, by uh, Governor Gavin, maskless photo taken by Governor Gavin Newsom at the same NFC championship game. Uh, said that he he took his picture with Magic Johnson, but he held his breath. I did not. He held inhale. his breath with the mask off. <laughs> he held his breath. Now, if I said to you that a white man would say that he took a picture with a black man, but he held his breath while he was doing so at any other time in human history, what what would your takeaway be from that anecdote? An HIV um, positive black man. Yes, I know. And, and anyway, um, so uh, as, as the wheels as the wheels come off the entire public health establishment and we're now seeing pieces in Politico about how Biden, you know, is planning to turn the page on on Omicron. And uh, uh, maybe he'll do that in uh, in his um, State of the Union address, whenever that will be. Um but I, I just think that um, I just think that we're now we're now moving into the sort of the comedy phase of the, you know, uh, of this uh, two year horror um, and uh, and and all efforts to maintain this rearguard action to uphold the status quo uh, with all of these behaviors are going to get increasingly ludicrous and preposterous. I don't know. You can get much more ludicrous than the I didn't inhale Magic Johnson around Magic Johnson, um, you know, uh, thing that Gil Garcetti did. But, you know, I mean, life is long and things happen. In fact, breaking news, uh, I hear Biden just appointed Jeff Zucker as the new head of the CDC. <laughs> you know, he goes for he's failed in every job he ever had, except for being uh, being the he executive likely- uh, producer of today. So Jeff Zucker's uh, firing uh, comes with um it's the sudden discovery by the mainstream media that he was a lousy head of CNN. Like 
He came in in 2013. In 2022, the audience is 15% smaller than it was in 2013. And Fox's audience is 35% bigger. And not only is Fox's audience bigger, but MSNBC's audience is like, particularly is like 40% bigger. And CNN's has shrunk. And he's just been sitting there with that fantastic lineup. Don drooling lemon at nine o'clock. You know, Chris... Chris preposterous Cuomo at nine o'clock, you know, just uh, whatever is going on there. And he, um, you know, just kind of know what he was like a barnacle. He ruined and he ruined NBC's fall schedule. He ruined, uh, you know, uh, it's all kinds of things like the failing upward is an amazing thing. So it may make perfect sense for him to take over the CDC and the FDA, which, of course, also has no head, I believe. And um maybe chief of staff to, to, to Biden. Cause you know, why not? Um, we can talk about some of this. Uh, Liel, I want, we, I wanted you on in particular because we haven't uh, really delved into this yet. And uh, you seem like the perfect person to have a conversation with about the amnesty and the release by amnesty international of its four year deep dive into the Israeli-Palestinian relationship and its uh, its complete uh, blanket uh, definition of Israel now as an apartheid state, the apartheid policies of the state dating back to its very existence, and even before but, that. And, well, of course, and even even before it was a state, it was an apartheid state. I really don't know how that's possible. Because, by the way, I'm not joking. Literally, the report accuses Israel of perpetrating apartheid, not just in Israel itself. OK, we'll buy it. Not just in the West Bank, much more complicated, not just in Gaza, which we haven't controlled in you know, more than a decade, but literally everywhere else, too. So even yeah. in territories that Israel has no say over, we perpetrate apartheid and cruel crimes, according to the report there as well. Uh, It's an amazing uh, thing because, um, according to this report, this report says various things very flatly, like 90% of the land uh, in mandatory Palestine was owned by uh, Arabs, and only 6.5% of the land was owned by by Jews. Uh, These numbers are patently false. Much of the land in mandatory Palestine wasn't owned at all. Um, and, uh, and, and the report begins, oddly enough, <laughs> with the uprising in the uh, Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, uh, which, was a, uh, which was a neighborhood in the 1880s owned by Jews that uh, Arabs then... Uh, took over in 1948 when Israel lost the old city uh, in the War of Independence. And so the report begins with Sheikh Jarrah, where there is a very complex series of complex litigation over who owns the houses in Sheikh Jarrah. If you are going with a historical definition of who owns the houses, the Jews own the houses. Wait, it actually begins with a lie. The very first thing in the report is a mangled quote from Netanyahu that tries to make it sound like he's endorsing this idea of Israel as an apartheid state. It was from an Instagram post and they misquote him. They remove the second part of the line, which basically is like which basically endorses and, and promotes this idea that Arab citizens of Israel have the same rights, basically undermining the apartheid claim. So from the very 
beginning, even from the little pull quote at the top, they are lying in this report. The the quote, to to be accurate, says we will destroy the Palestinian planet Aldron with our death star. (laughs) Exactly. Zionist planet. Uh, You know, this is this is an amazing report. There's so much uh, from it to, to pick and love. Here's my favorite bit. Uh, my favorite bit is that according to the report, and, and look, I, I can't pretend that I've read the whole 387,000 pages because there's not enough gin in the state of New York to sustain me through this. But my favorite tidbit is that there are precisely 225,178, not nine or six, 78 Jewish Israeli settlers living illegally in East Jerusalem. So um, the Times of Israel sat down the, uh, the, the, the two clowns who are in charge of, of Amnesty International now, whose names are inconsequential uh, as is their you know, intelligence and, and deadened souls, uh, and asked them, well, how do you define the line? Where is East Jerusalem? What is a, an illegitimate settler? And they basically said, well, you know, anyone who lives there in, in that thing in Jerusalem. And they said, well, hold on. Do you mean like, for example, the Jewish quarter of the old city? And they're like, well, because, like, you know, there have been Jews living there for quite a while, as you could kind of surmise from the name, the Jewish quarter of the old city. And they're like, well, now here's the thing. My 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 grandmother, uh, noted apartheid enthusiast, uh, is one of member of, of such a family. Uh, she was kicked out in 1948 by the Jordanian army, uh, you know, as as all good apartheid practitioners do when they lose the land where they're apartheiding to an invading Arab army. Uh, And then, you know, her family returned home after spending quite some time in the Jordanian Legion prison. Uh, According to Amnesty International, they are now uh, settler colonialists who are committing crimes against humanity. I mean, there, there, there's so much, as you say, so much to unpack. And obviously, the point about the report is that it begins with its conclusion and then backfills, uh, cherry picks uh, evidence. Um, but it, it patently describes a falsehood uh, that I, I think even the most um, hostile anti-Israel people can see the illogic of, which is that the idea is that Israel that apartheid defines the state of Israel because from the outset, the Israeli policy was to figure out ways to fragment and isolate and cause to be isolated the Palestinian polis uh, in a divide and conquer strategy to make it impossible for them to aggregate effectively as a political force. this does not describe the reality of what happened between 1948 and the present, where um, the uh, the existence of, say, the uh, refugee camp that is Gaza, this now 80-year-old refugee camp, um, was not Israel's doing. The aggregation of Palestinians in Gaza was the Palestinians' doing. They fled wherever they were, went to Gaza if they weren't already in Gaza, and then basically uh, assigned themselves to the munificence of the UN uh, to become a kind of welfare vassal populace. With an assist from every other Arab nation that kept them in that condition for, you know, cynical political purposes. Keeps them. Right, right. 
And, you know, and they, they lived under the Jordanian, you know, the, the Jordanians uh, had control of the West Bank and Jerusalem and everything that was on the far side of what is now called the Green Line, everything that, according to Amnesty International, any Israeli claim on is Ill illegitimate and needs to be considered a violation of international law, uh, property land that the Palestinians themselves in 1947 and 1948 rejected for statehood. There was a partition plan, the UN partitioned, was going to be two countries, one Israeli, one Palestinian, one Jewish, one Palestinian. The Palestinians said no, they wanted the whole they wanted the whole loaf. The entire Arab world went to war with Israel. Israel, you know, gamely defended, you know, held the line until the armistice of 1949. There was no systematic nothing. The, the green line was where it was because that was when hostilities ceased. Nobody put Arabs on one side or the other of the green line except the Arab states themselves when they decided to cry uncle. And, uh, and uh, Palestinian Arabs, uh, Palestinian Jewish citizens, the Arab Jewish citizens of Israel live wherever Arab Jewish citizens of Israel live. And like all minority groups in a majority country, they will tend to live comfortably, you know, in enclaves that they live in that they feel mo most, most comfortable in. And the there, is no, there is no systematic... There was never any systematic effort, unlike, by the way, with with uh, Mizrahi Jews uh, who just lost everything and then made no claims because they basically returned home to their ancestral homeland. And they understood that to be a pretty good trait. Right. But they but basically when Mizrahi Jews came to Israel in the late 40s and early 50s, they were assigned geographical destinations. They were sent to to settlement cities, uh, you know, in the south in these places that were sort of as we understand them, kind of horrifying, not not horrifying, but it was a little like being sent to, you know, to Kansas in the desert in 1895 or something like that. Um, but, you know, this was not the case with Palestine. They weren't shepherded anywhere. They weren't forced anywhere. They weren't shoved into a ghetto. Everything that would define apartheid as a legal matter. And I just want to read one thing from the report that this guy, Luther, one of the two uh, authors of the author, Wait, authors how great they the even report. have like comic book villain names like my name is philip <laughs> luther luther <laughs> yeah um hold on kryptonite his... jews so so lazar berman uh who did the interview and who was a commentary contributor did a really brilliant brilliant job with this interview in the times of israel if you just search times of israel amnesty berman uh, you should be able to find it in google um and here is how he he explains why it is that uh, Israel and Myanmar are the only two countries on earth right now that amnesty is willing to describe as apartheid states, meaning that they, um, you know, systematically oppress and geographically dominate uh, a minority population. Right. Um, so uh, Lazar Berman asks this guy, Luther, uh, uh, th there are singular things which might explain the obsessive focus on Israel in sort of international fora. You say it's the occupation that is the most pressing issue for human rights bodies. And Luther says, no, no, it's not the most pressing, but the thing is, it is a singular issue. Normally, when people go to the UN, they're reporting on violations that they're committing within their recognized borders. That is very particular, and therefore you will see mechanisms that will be set up in order to deal with that. And that, I would suggest in terms of the report, its intention in terms of the Israeli state is the complexity of laws, policies, and practices that is difficult to untangle. 
It is the Israeli state that forces everyone to spend time disentangling it. The Syrian regime is absolutely abhorrent in all its ways, but it's chillingly simple, the crimes against humanity there. It's massacres, it's bombs being dropped on residential areas. See, that's chillingly simple. That takes less time to disentangle, says this guy Luther. You still need to get the evidence, but, but, but the Israeli state has made it so difficult to penetrate its apartheid regime. They have tried to create a smokescreen around, and of course there's a democratic system, and there are judicial institutions that of course call, then call the state to account or at least challenge their decisions. But that's what makes it so challenging in some ways then to disentangle them when you put it all together. In other words, Israel's a democratic state. It has laws. The laws, there's a Supreme Court and a judicial system that evaluates those laws and in many cases has found those laws needlessly restrictive or unfair or something like that. And all this together is a smokescreen. It's not real. The democracy is not real. It's there to make it easier to oppress and create an apartheid regime over Palestinians. This so, is actually what this guy says. It's I like the it, 1619 says, Project for Israel. Right. Every, everything is there in place. <laughs> yeah to perpetrate yeah. this oppression. So the evil of Israel is that it has a democratic state with democratic institutions that write laws, and those laws are public, and it, they're very hard to disentangle. So he says okay, in but, the end, yes. But one other thing, if it's so chillingly simple to see a human rights violation in the form of people bombing other people, that's another kind of wild omission in this report. They do not talk about Hamas. They do not talk about attacks on Israeli civilians. It is nowhere to be found in the story that they are trying to tell about Israel, that any of the reactions that Israeli law and policy has had to implement in the last 50 years is a direct response to threats to its civilians. There's they nothing do talk about they do talk about the uh, color coded identification system rather complex for the various Palestinian territories, which are required for Palestinians to travel to work in Israel. Uh, as though that's, you know, I mean, they're issued by the Israeli military, so it's not, you know, necessarily comparable to us, but it's certainly comparable to other countries around the world. And Amnesty International would know that if they knew anything about any other country in the world. This interview in the Times that we've been talking about, they're repeatedly pressed to talk about Chinese practices, Turkish practices, Syrian practices. And they often say, this guy Luther is like, I don't know anything about Turkey. You don't know anything about Turkey? Well, I mean, we're talking about the same neighborhood. Yeah. But listen, I just want to complete the quote. And Liel, I just want you to react to this. So remember, this is why is this really obsessive focus? How is how how is it an apartheid state and these others aren't? So he says, I would put it back on the Israeli state. In some ways, it ends up being a driver of complexity and a driver of resources unnecessarily spent on investigations by anybody because it's made so damn complicated. So the evil of Israel is that it has a responsive democratic political system. And that makes it really hard for an organization like Amnesty International to defame slander and slander it by saying that it's an apartheid state because the laws clearly make it clear that it's not. So that's all a trick. It's a giant trick. And so the last thing you should do, according to Amnesty International, is have a democratic political system because that just makes it too hard for Amnesty International to do its job. So, John, I'm I'm not going to win Miss Congeniality for what I'm about to say, but I think in a really weird, messed up way, I think Monsieur Luther has it right. Uh, not on the merits of his 
absolutely patently ridiculous, intellectually morally offensive, you know, idiotic statement. But in a, in a kind of odd way, I think it's, if it's not Israel's fault, it's not not Israel's fault either. Here's the thing. When you continue for decades uh, keeping up this, this facade, this charade, this charade, if you will, uh, that you're engaged in something called the peace process with people who then take all the money you give them and invest it directly in murdering you. And you say, well, I'm really trying to disentangle this and understand what it is and how we could you know, live together and uh, you know, talk to the UN and, and do hasbara so people understand our point of view. It's your own damn fault. Like at some point, if you're a normal, self-respecting person, you look at these amnesty creeps, you look at the Palestinians, you look at the UN and say, and say words I'm probably not allowed to say on this podcast and end it all because that's what a normal person does. And Israel is obsessive over debating with these guys, discussing with them. We have a foreign minister who literally said the other day that Israel's problem is that it can't tell its story in a way that will convince people that it's really a good country. I mean, come on now. This is ridiculous. Um, we're the Keystone Cops in this movie, is what I'm saying. But we're we're very <laughs> right. happy to be part of this comedy. Well, I mean, the one praise that is given to Israel in the course of this report is praise given to anti-Israel organizations inside <laughs> Israel that have supplied exactly. this have supplied amnesty with bullshit data, like the 225,111.2 people living. You know, in a in a you know, adding a bathroom to That's a house. another one. They were confronted with that in this Times interview, and they didn't couldn't back up the figure. Like, oh, well, it's footnoted. It's an extremely specific <laughs> figure. Yeah, that that is central to the thesis that you don't you don't have it at the top of your fingertips. You can't actually you know explain where that came from. Well, you think he read it? <laughs> Good point. Who read it? It's 287 pages. I read the executive summary. I could barely get through the executive summary, which, by the way, has about 40 grammatical errors in it. I mean, I sort of expect I expect a little better from an organization that has a budget of 250 million dollars a year. Like they could have like a minimally grammatically uh, aware copy editor fix their stupid report. I believe the footnotes show that they got this number from a human rights organization called I hate Jews dot biz uh, is where they got that number. Dot biz. <laughs> I mean, Hasbara, just for people who don't know, Hasbara is a term given for the uh, public relations effort to show the world that Israel is just a normal, fun loving, everyday country like every other country. Look, we have beaches. Look, there are surfers. We're playing hacky sack. And, you know, uh, we go to bars on come to Tel Aviv. Oh, the bar scene is fantastic. And now we have a we have a train that goes from Tel Aviv <laughs> to Jerusalem. And we have light rail in Jerusalem. And we have a, we have an amusement park. Finally, and the Jews have the train. So you've yeah. come such a long way. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I don't mean to make fun of it because sure, wh- why not? I mean, it's it, it perfectly fine as a sort of as an as a arrow, uh, you know, as a in the quiver. Um, of of the self defense of, of of the country, but mostly it's there to make uh, other Jews feel good and say, yeah, why don't we talk about how there's a lot of surfing in Tel Aviv, and you know, but you know, I, I'm, the hummus is just fantastic. Go ahead, Abe. I'm, I, I'm I'm extremely Bauhaus architecture. I'm extremely sympathetic to Liel's point about sort of engaging uh, with this nonsense, but on the other hand, to ask. 
Israel not to engage is sort of another instance of sort of asking them not to be like any other country, right? Uh, every, every nation would have to defend itself against an international nominally human rights organization putting out a damning report. There's a sort of fine line, I think, between um, treating these, um, these like enraged anti-Israel critics as um, serious interlocutors and sort of mounting a, a, a respectable defense. And it's, it's, it's a, it, it, you get into, like it, you could go down some bad roads trying to do it and you end up looking silly. But but but, it's, but you, you still need to you still need to mount some defense. I hear your point, and and, and there, there are two kind of ways I can answer it. One is the sort of tinfoil hat wearing complete crazy belief that that I actually have, uh, which is that Israel isn't a normal country. In fact, be, being a, a firm believer in divine election, I believe that there are two nations on earth uh, that were, were graced by the Almighty, uh, Israel and the United States. But we don't have to get into that. Uh, more concretely, and, and closer here to the surface of of, of this planet. Uh, I think you're right. You do have to engage with reality in some way, but then the question has to be what type of reality are you engaging with? Uh, it's, for example, when you live in America, like, do, do you take seriously or even bother reading what the New York Times uh, has to say? Or do you understand that there are now other media outlets uh, that reach millions and millions of people uh, that don't maybe carry the same kind of, uh, shall we say, archaeological weight of having this once great name of the New York Times or Amnesty International, uh, but that are actually much more meaningful. To me, you know, watching just last week, you know, the Israeli president visiting the Emirates and, and singing Hatikva, uh, that to me is kind of an indication that we're doing okay engaging with the rest of the world. We, we don't have to deal with these creeps. And as an exceptional country, obviously, because that, that's the point about the, the meeting in the UAE um, was that it was an acknowledgement of, of an exceptional, I mean, on the one hand, you have normalization, literally, right? That's the term, the normalization of relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, a sort of groundbreaking, you know, mind-blowing event that that there should be, you know, kosher restaurants and, uh, you know, in a- in More a, there than there are Arab in Tel Aviv, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and all of that, um, so it's normalization. On the other hand, uh, clearly the idea here is to make a point about the exceptional, that something exceptional has happened here, not that something normal has happened here, which gets to your point about Israel's unique status. And where I would disagree with you, Abe, is Amnesty International goes around, issues reports about how America is a civil rights violator because it has the death penalty. And I don't really see America responding to Amnesty International. Now, America doesn't have to respond. We're a country of 330. We're incredibly powerful. I don't know. Are the Burmese, is Myanmar responding to Amnesty International's um, pretty fair claim? I mean, uh, that it is, you know, certainly it is uh, wildly oppressive of its uh, Christian minorities. I mean, I don't know if it's apartheid. You know, by the way, that's the other thing is the use of apartheid is, of course, racialist in tone, right? That's an, It's an effort to invoke South Africa. That's why you use it. Apartheid was a very specific form of um, uh, civil rights abuse toward an, um, uh, a population, not a minority population, a majority population in a country. Um, that's one of the you know oddities of it. So you only use the word apartheid because you were trying to establish that relationship. I don't even know if you would call what goes on between Myanmar and its and its and its Christian minorities apartheid. It's like classic. 
you know, it's classic religious oppression or something like that. But I mean, do they care? I mean, they probably care, but does it does it make any difference? It only makes a difference. This is, I think, where Liel's right. I mean, it only makes a difference if you think it makes a difference. Um, the weird thing is that every 10 years, there's some report that comes out that defames Israel. Um, you know, there was the famous, the Goldstone report in 2009, um, produced by a Jewish South African jurist about... Uh, about um, uh, Israel's war crime. I guess it was war crimes. I can't even, it's amazing. I can't even remember. Like it was such a tempest in a teapot. And then after like a couple of, a couple of mild debunkings of things in the Goldstone report, Goldstone himself said, well, I guess I didn't really read the report. <laughs> I guess I, I kind of, you know, I, if I had to do over, I would have done it differently. Like he got waylaid and conned by some effort like this. And I think the point is, you're right, that sort of Bibi Netanyahu decided in his 12-year tenure as prime minister that he was not going to engage himself. He was not going to let these people in his head. He was going to pursue an entirely different strategy, go it his own way, try to make international relationships work, whatever he would use. And we now know from Ronan Bergman's reporting and others that they were using advanced high-tech stuff as a trading, you know, as something to trade for the purposes of, you know, uh, establishing good relationships and all of that. And a lot of this effort, even our discussing this, is, is, is about calming American Jews who can't bear the idea that, you know, nice liberal organizations are still hostile to Israel. And therefore, you got you to gotta, you gotta push back. But this is why. OK, so but this is one sense of not to be the pessimist here, but in terms of how um, uh, in terms of American support for Israel and particularly younger American support for Israel, I do think the use of the apartheid term is very uh, concerning. And that's because it is perfectly suited hashtag apartheid to, to just be a social media easy label that's clearly negative. That's oh, been, hashtag apartheid yeah. is so pr- I really no, want but a T-shirt that says hashtag they, apartheid. No, but that's what it's used for. And these I'll are people, you know, it's it's part of now the progressive vision of the world. It's unquestioned by the people who embrace it in the same way that, you know, the 1619 Project view of America's origins was questioned. And in that sense, it's very powerful and, and uh, Amnesty's use of it is very deliberate. And so that does worry me because it's harder to fight back. You have to actually get into the history of and meaning of apartheid in the history of and establishment of Israel and, and the laws. And it's very complicated to respond and very easy as kind of hashtag activism. See, I, 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 I hear you completely. And, and Abe, this kind of circles back to your point. But, but now we're kind of getting, you know, metaphysical here because the same exact thing is happening internally, right? I mean, in, in this use of terms that's so, you know, far stretched, you know, the meaning of any discernible thing that is that is observably real, like the constant accusations of racism, that at some point you just have to say, well, what we have here isn't isn't a political problem, but we have here is a reality problem, but we have here is like a mental health crisis on, on a national scale. Well, I mean, this is always the issue. I think every time we talk about this, like with the 1619 project or anything like that is, are we really going to engage in this conversation, um, you know, uh, how would you describe it? Like earnestly um, and take up 
its arguments one by one seriously and then debunk them one by one and show how they're historically inaccurate and how this is not this or that is not that? Or are you going to say this entire thing is a propaganda effort? Uh, it is an effort to defame the United States and to push a new idea of power and to empower people who don't deserve it and, and, to, and to sort of force a new understanding on people and we reject it entirely. And there's, there's no real good answer to that to quote, because, yeah. To, to, to quote the, the wise, so go ahead, go ahead, Abe. No, 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 you, you were going to quote someone wise. I was going to quote the wise rabbi, uh, Rabbeinu Shlomo Steve Bannon, uh, who, you know, said very, like, what, what, what do you want? I'm a white supremacist? Okay, I'm a fascist? Fine. Hashtag apartheid? All right, I'm an apartheid state. Great. Happy now? Like, can we please move on from this charade? Like, again, this this dynamic, I mean, it sounds kind of crass and weird, but I think there's something tremendously liberating, especially because there is a huge swath of people uh, who are kind of, you know, good. And, and I see this in, in, in my line of work. Sounds like I'm a first responder, right? But I talk to Jews, which has its own, you know, kind of risks, professional hazards, if you will, every day. And, and I think there, there were people who three years ago would have been totally shocked by something and deeply troubled. I mean, when the Goldstone report came out, people were genuinely upset that these allegations were made and really wanted to engage with them because they felt, oh my God, there might be some truth to it. I think now, you know, we've, we've been through enough for enough people to say, you know what, I don't care. This has like a weird kind of inverse effect. I think of rallying more and more and more of us around, around common goals and practices that are good in a strange way. Does that make sense? I mean, well, I it guess also it, it doesn't address terrorism. The list of recommendations right. are all entirely putting the responsibility on Israel to do all of these. You know, we have to punish them. We have to sanction them. We have to do this. this. There is nothing in that report about what the Palestinian obligation is to stop trying to kill Israeli civilians, right. civilians, nothing. There's just right. nothing there. Not even don't murder Jews between two and four yes, in the afternoon exactly. or in Shabbos, like nothing. Yeah. I just uh, want to say on, on the propaganda point, of course it is propaganda. And then, so there's the idea, well, we should you know treat it as uh, propaganda and not a uh, legitimate debate. The, the problem is that propaganda works um, or it can work. I mean, maybe I'm just uh, particularly traumatized by, what, by what's gone on in this country over the past two years or so, but we've seen this massive shift in public opinion due to propaganda and, and, and several other factors. So again, there has to be sort of some response. And I guess, you know, like when we talk about the Abraham Accords and in some sense, you know, ever since the, the success and the, the, the successive signings of the, um, from various other countries of the Abraham Accords, my response to a lot of this stuff personally has been, well, so what? The Abraham Accords are in place. Israel's Sunni Arab neighbors know what's going on. Those relationships are improving. What what does it matter? But so so but then what is the significance here? I mean, it's not well, nothing at the same time. Um, if, if we go back in time to the systematic effort to discredit Israel's existence in international four and you go back to the most notorious example, which was the Zionism is racism resolution at the UN in 1975. Israel had very few resources then. I mean, its resources were uh, that it had uh, in, in to the wonder, amazement, and jaw to everybody in the world, it had built this like first-class military that had not only had this wild success in, in, in 1967, uh, but had withstood uh, a, you know, a, a surprise attack uh, in 1973 uh, that took it entirely by, you know, uh, shock and did not, in fact, end up 
you know, and, and prevailed. Uh, but it had basically the support of a couple of countries on Earth, uh, Europe, which had been very cowed by its anti-Semitic history, had been very loath to be negative about Israel and basically turned on it in 1975. And Israel had no resources. Palakadot wasn't even born for you know three or four more years. <laughs> yeah. at that point. I mean, it was, it was a poor country. Uh, it was a resource low country. There were 22 much more powerful Arab states that had control of the world's you know, economic lifeblood. And, uh, and so um, its existence was at stake. Uh, we're, na- we're now uh, 74 years into Israel's existence. It is now the 26th or 27th richest country on earth. It has survived uh, not only uh, the Yom Kippur War, it has survived uh, incursions, it has survived intifadas, it has survived, uh, you know, scud attacks, it has survived all kinds of things, and not only survived, but then built this kind of uh, remarkable high-tech economy around it. And it's the fact of its existence, which was much more conditional 50 years ago, now seems unconditional, um, except, you know, with this wild looming potential threat from Iran, which is an existential threat. But otherwise, Israel has outlasted generations of people who, who thought that it might just go away. The way countries did go away in the course of the 20th century, new, newly minted, newly conceived countries that got, got gobbled up by others or things that were created by the Sykes-Picot Treaty uh, after World War I that didn't really last, fake homelands, all kinds of stuff like that. It has survived and it has thrived and the facts on the ground have changed everything. But I guess Christine is right in this sense, which is that, you know, all things being equal, you don't want to give ammunition like the amnesty gives ammunition to kind of this, um, you know, a fashionable young population uh, in the United States and elsewhere that may end up becoming part of the leadership class. You know, you don't want Alexander, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez could be president someday. And she is, you know, she is, you know what I mean? She's like, a, she is basically sprung full blown out of the head of B'Tselem and, and, and the anti-Israel movement. So, um, you know, that's bad, but, um, but uh, it, it's different, like it's different in degree. Uh, a report like this would have consumed uh, the Jew, the world of American and world Jewry for months and months and months, 15 years ago. And I, and it's like a four day story. It's not just a four day. I mean, I, I don't mean to belittle its importance because, you know, slander and defamation and effectively when you, uh, when you target Israel for doing things, a, it doesn't do and B that other countries do much worse than it does, but you single it out. That is classic anti-Semitism in another form. Amnesty International is an anti-Semitic organization, full stop, without question. It, 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 is, it is creating two standards by which it measures and judges countries, and it should be called out for the same. But it doesn't have the same juice it once did somehow. I just don't feel like it does. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a legend of a different time. Amnesty it actually serves, serves something. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm by far the dumbest person on this panel, so I feel very comfortable saying, you know, what I'm about to say. Uh, I, I think, I think it oh. actually serves a, an important purpose. Uh, and, and, and here it is. Look, I, I wrote a while back a piece that brought me precisely zero joy, in which I, I said that 
since at least May, uh, when the when the latest round of skirmishes in Gaza broke out, I think a lot of people are realizing something that is both true and terrifying, which is all these arguments that we used to have about, well, you know, I'm a liberal Zionist, which means I support Israel's right to exist, but I am genuinely troubled by some of its policies vis-a-vis the Palestinians. And I wish it did, you know, more to allow the Palestinians freedom of movement. And wouldn't it be easy if they had like... All those are incredibly good and, and helpful and thoughtful arguments. And, and I don't want to appear like I'm, I'm sort of, you know, negating them or belittling them or saying, you know, our way or the highway, you either support everything that, you know, the, the hardest right uh, wing of Israeli politicians do or you're, you know, a, a filthy anti-Semite. But I think May and, and even more so this report kind of as they used to say in the 60s, heightens the contradictions uh, and kind of makes it clear that right now there are really only two teams, right? It's it's either Zionist or anti-Zionist. You either support Israel or you don't. If you do, yes, we have a million and one differences and there are significant differences and hopefully there will be time to discuss all of them after the inflammation subsides. But right now there's an entire side that is inflamed uh, by these ideas. And it's kind of important to recognize that they are. And it's actually kind of a service that Amnesty International did us all in reminding us that we're not dealing with people who talk in good faith. I mean, four, five, six years ago, we still had very meaningful and nuanced discussions about whether or not anti-Zionism is a form of anti-Semitism. And people could make very good kind of detailed, subtle arguments. Now these arguments are meaningless because you see that these are not humans negotiating in good faith. And this is, you you mentioned the Berman uh, interview, which I think is a complete must read. He gives them all, he gives the Amnesty International boss like all the rope in the world with which to hang themselves. And they gleefully do so because it's clear that they're just vile, filthy anti-Semites. There's nothing more to it. There's no room to discuss. Well, and they, they because the hubris about uh, you got the sense from the tone of the responses that they were shocked to even be asked about this. Like, how why should we have to compare what we're saying in our condemnation of Israel to other countries? Right. Everybody knows they're the worst. I mean, there was a real sort of surprise that this was being pressed. Like, what are you talking about, China, these other countries, Syria? It was shocking. Like, they really were surprised to be pressed on that issue, which I think speaks exactly to your point. Look, I, I can't remember when this was because now everything just mushes together. But there was this famous incident that was reported on by Barbara Emil uh, in, I don't know, 20 years ago or something like that. She's sitting with a major diplomat, I think, in London at her table or somewhere, you know, and, and, and either it was a British or Canadian diplomat or something like that who said, why does everybody care so much about this shitty little country? Meaning... We're talking about this country as opposed to all the Arab countries, which are much more important to us. That, that, by the way, is a very key element here, which is uh, it was once very costly to support Israel. It meant that you were embargoed by the Arab. Once once Arab nationalism sort of rose to the fore, um, there was a real challenge, right, that the the countries that controlled oil uh, wanted Israel's destruction. There was a real politic argument that was pretty serious to say we really shouldn't be lining up with this country against them. What are we doing? That's not the right way to run the political railroad here. Um, that you know, I, just in terms of our national interests, we need to be much more connected to them than we do to to Israel. Why are we doing this, right? And then there was just the conscience of the world problem, which is you know, Jews had in gathered after the Holocaust. Jews Jews had in gathered after the Holocaust. And it was necessary under these conditions for the 
you know, for for uh, countries of goodwill to do something to make sure that another catastrophe wasn't going to happen to them. And now Israel's not a shitty little country anymore. It just isn't, you know, and 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 the importance of the Arab oil states has receded as oil is as oil as you know as the United States has become a net exporter of oil. As 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 oil is now, you know, everywhere, as we know from the controversy over the Nord Stream pipeline. And so, you know, um, in the world of the uh, rapporteurs and uh, Davos and international organizations where they continue to sit around and imagine that they can kind of rewrite the rules of the world to fit their own liberal leftist uh, order, um, um, Israel is beyond their reach in a way that it was not beyond their reach before. And I, I, final point, and then we should move on. I should read an ad, and then we should talk about some other things. Um, in from 1948 to 1987, uh, Arab citizens of Israel, and indeed after 67, Arab residents of the West Bank, uh, now then under Israeli rule, had completely free. Access, you know, uh, Arab citizens have always had completely free access. Arab citizens of the West Bank drove into Jerusalem to do work on houses, you know, went around the country, did whatever they wanted to do. It was the outbreak of the first intifada, a, you know, a basically a revolt against Israeli rule on the West Bank, and then increasing terrorist acts culminating in the second intifada in which a thousand Israelis were killed. There was a bomb. There were bombs being blown up every day, being manufactured in towns on the West Bank, bomb factories, and all of that. The restrictions on Palestinian freedom of movement and all of that, and the building of the wall, were responses. Israel didn't want to impose these restrictions. Israel had no interest in imposing these restrictions. It actually, not to be too weird in the American context, it had a cheap effective labor force in, in, in Arabs from the West Bank who did a lot of the construction work and house cleaning and all of that in Israel after 1967. That's how they had made their livelihoods in a lot of ways. Israelis didn't want to shut that down. Palestinians made it necessary to shut it down for elementary security reasons. Also um, something that doesn't feature in the report. Right. And Israeli Arabs, by the way, I mean, if, if you step into a hospital in Israel or a pharmacy, uh, you know, or, or, or a dental clinic or, you know, any kind of kind of like high end, high paid, high status professional setting like this, your chances of, of you know, your doctor or your pharmacist being an Israeli Arab is are very, very high uh, because this is a population that is increasingly, you know, more and more high achieving, increasingly more and more educated, increasingly enjoying more and more kind of financial uh, economic opportunities. Uh, we're pretty bad at apartheiding, it seems to me. Yeah, you, well, that's yeah, the, the you, other thing. Yeah, the suck. report, right. the, the report doesn't distinguish between Israeli Arab citizens no. and uh, people in the territories, right? They're all under uh, uh, the same apartheid regime. And, you know, so what when, when you talk, when they when they talk about apartheid and they define it about it in sort of racial terms to, to sort of paraphrase uh, Whoopi Goldberg here on the Israeli side, this has nothing to do about race. This is a national security. As John was saying, this was in response to the, this is a national security issue with neighboring territories. Now, there are Israelis, to be fair, there are Israelis who have ideologized this. 
or 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 um i don't know religious i don't know what the term would be you know to who have attempted to then structure almost sort of post facto uh, a set of uh, excuses explanations and positive reasons why uh these kinds of uh, why why the imposition of actual discriminatory laws is right and good and proper for the future uh, of Israel based on a certain type of understanding of, of, of biblical precepts and stuff like that. It's not that that doesn't exist. It does. And it's a real thing. And that's part of the conversation that can be had that Liel is talking about that goes on every day in Israel, not only in relation to how Arabs are treated, but in relation to how Jews are treated in relation to the civil rights of Jews inside Israel, which, 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 uh, uh, which are a, a constant sort of weird subject of questions about rights over how you wed and how you divorce and how uh, property is settled and various other things in which uh, certain types of democratically entered into parliamentary negotiations then interfere, uh, the needs of politics can interfere with elementary civil rights and all of that. That's a real thing. And it's a real thing that some people advocate for a kind of apartheid and say that apartheid is good. They are not, in fact, in charge of anything. And they and they that is that is not the governing authority about this. The governing authority has to do with the security issue and, and very little else. Anyway, let me move on to talk to you about the X chair. It's been a while since I've talked to you about the X chair and, you know, you love it. It's that uh, that patented LMX technology that allows you to warm up your back when you're cold uh, to cool down your back when you're warm using its uh, and and to massage your back with its four massage settings and that dynamic variable lumbar support that provides a kind of support to your back that you just can't even imagine going uh, sitting in another chair once you start sitting in the X chair. It is the luxury supercar of office chairs. I'm sitting in one right now. I wouldn't sit in any other chair. It's good looking. It's it's uh, it's terrifically uh, comfortable. It is uh, a great thing. And I really, really strongly recommend it. So look, for $100 off your order, go to xchaircommentary.com now so you can try XChair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Common, xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30 day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. That's X chair commentary.com. Liel, speaking of uh, terrorism uh, and not just terrorism against uh, Israel, but terrorism against the United States and against Arabs and against the world order, Joe Biden announced this morning the successful completion of a mission uh, uh, in Syria, uh, that has led to the killing of the head of ISIS, uh, whose name is Abu Ibrahim al Hashimi al Qureshi. How about that? Repeat it after me. Baruch Abu Hashem. Ibrahim al Hashimi. <laughs> Baruch Hashem. Um, Baruch Diana Met. Anyway, can you, um, uh, so it's interesting because, of course, but last we heard about Biden, he was against the Osama bin Laden raid. So um, apparently he has also learned that at times of political, uh, maybe at times of uh, political distress. And when you get a when you get a, a piece of intelligence that your drone uh, can go off and, and kill somebody, he has changed his tune and is now a supporter of a good drone strike against uh, against ISIS. 
Hey, I'm sorry. This was not a drone strike. I'm sorry. It was not a drone. It was a, it was actually a raid. Um, yeah. And that for people who haven't really been following the ISIS theater, it's been very hot for the better part of a month and American forces have been participating in, in actions against, uh, reconstituting ISIS forces and also this prison break, um, over the, I think two or three weeks ago, which resulted in several days of very intense fighting. Um, and apparently was contained. This guy's really bad dude. Taking him off the battlefield is a good thing. Um, he was an ISIS or Al Qaeda operative uh, after 2004 in Iraq for a very long time. Successor to Al Baghdadi, who uh, was the former head of ISIS, the mastermind, according to a very good po- uh, profile of this guy by BBC correspondent in News Lines magazine, um, was the brainchild behind many of ISIS's crimes against humanity early in the uh, establishment of the caliphate, particularly against the Yazidis. So um, uh, when, you know, somebody who was taken off the battlefield, more, you know, good, but we're talking about uh, a reconstituting organization in a theater that's growing increasingly uh, tense, uh, particularly with the very active efforts of the Houthi uh, rebels in Yemen targeting uh, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, what have you. So uh, the Middle East is becoming a, a source of of tension again. And Biden has been very cautiously and carefully engaging in that in, in a way that I think is commendable. And we shouldn't dismiss it as some sort of a wag the dog effort, which I see people who are obsessively focused with domestic politics think, ah, oh, this is this is all domestic politics. Uh, no, it's not. And the Biden administration is proactive in this in a way that I think is commendable here. Um, but this isn't the end of this fight, you know, just as the elimination of Baghdadi didn't end the ISIS threat. So hopefully we don't take our eye off the ball. I, I, I was totally go ahead. agree. Um, uh, and, you know, as, as Noah alludes to, um, there there is a sort of simmering uh, jihadist reconstitution at work right now because um, you have the Houthis attacking the UAE. You have ISIS in both Syria and Iraq. Um, and you have, I would cite, um, these examples of supposedly lone uh, jihadists in the West. In the West, the, the, the synagogue shooter, the, the guy who stabbed a British MP to death. Um, while I commend the Biden administration for taking out this one terrible guy, I don't think there's no link between what's happening now and our withdrawal in Afghanistan and um uh, the Taliban finding itself in the single strongest position it has ever been in, and the message that that sends to fellow travelers around the world. No, we're only talking about the human rights atrocities that are ongoing in Afghanistan, and not the reconstitution of terror organizations. Right. Um, the the Taliban government has re-implemented suicide bombing as a, a tactic, a preferred. Uh, military tactic. They're training suicide squads. And according to the reporting out of Pakistan, there's quite a bit of harassment and terrorist activity linked to um, the Taliban that's destabilizing a new nuclear power in South Asia. Uh, this is going to become a focus of American policymakers, if not now, in very short order. This, by the way, is a very important point to link into the Israel discussion we were having. Because one of the things that happened over the last 10, 12 years was the utter destruction of the idea that the destabilizing factor in the Middle East was was centered in the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. And that the only way to calm the roiling Arab street was a resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. That has been utterly and completely 
blown out of the water by event after event after event after event. It was never true. It was always a kind of delusion of the peace processors and the international foreign policy establishment and an effort to create the moral pressure on Israel to force it into unilateral concessions. But since the um, Arab Spring, since the rise of ISIS, since the rise of the of the open hostilities between Saudi Arabia and, and Iran, as Iran has moved ever closer to nuclear weapons, forcing Saudi Arabia into a kind of um, uh, entente of, uh, of mutual interest with Israel, which is the single most gobs- gobsmacking event of my lifetime uh, in foreign policy terms. And of course, we have the story this morning that uh, you, you, U.S. negotiators uh, now believe that one way or another, Iran is a year away from getting a nuclear weapon. Um, and that they are sort of acknowledging this as enough, they are going fuel forward. for a nuclear weapon. Is that enough fuel for a nuclear weapon? Although I don't really know what the precise difference is, but okay. But the, there, there is a difference because they, okay, they don't I, have. I, I know, uh, yeah. I know. I, I, well, they, gas they, is, they, gas they, is they very pricey right now, so they're just they're just saving up for some, yeah, a right. full tank. No, but they, yeah, they need the missile, they need the delivery system, all of well, that. Not, no, the, not the delivery system, the miniaturization and the implosion right. technology. And as we know from the cache of documents, Israel liberated from Iran that that's not the obstacle here. Like, assembling the the weapons grade fuel is the problem. Making the bomb right. isn't the hard part. Right. Anyway, uh, but, you know, it's an interesting thing because there was a weird moment a month ago when one of the leading negotiators uh, for the Biden administration, who was a holdover, Richard Nephew, left the team, quit. Um, uh, he hasn't made a public statement about why, but basically uh, the the scuttlebutt is that he believed that uh, uh, that uh, Robert Malley, who was uh, Biden's lead negotiator, had basically gone into these negotiations with a we are going to come up with something at any cost and we are going to let the Iranians have whatever it is that they want. And we're just going to blame uh, every advance that they have and everything that we've had to acknowledge they have advanced on that we can't affect on Trump's decision to pull out of the JCPOA, which, of course, is preposterous because the JCPOA, uh, you know, uh, was no was no barrier to them continuing their research. That's what the IAEA, that's what all the international reporting was telling us was whatever little information we could get on how Iran Iran was moving forward. It wasn't that we had done anything to slow their progress down or, you know, uh, with the JCPOA. So we got we got uh, we got boots on the ground in Syria uh, you know, staging raids like the Bin Laden raid on on ISIS. We have a negotiation in Vienna that seems ready to uh, accept the idea of an Iranian. Uh, uh, well, but here's back to the Israeli nuclear, conversation yeah. because Israel is not. Israel re- regards uh, nuclear Iran as an unacceptable outcome, and I don't believe they will. They, I believe they will behave accordingly in the event that uh, nuclearization is imminent. I think we, we we can forecast Israeli military action uh, to an extent that. Uh, Israel intelligence services have penetrated um, Iran, which is pretty extensive, um, we can expect a pretty uh, surgical strike. So in the event that that happens, as as undesirable as that outcome would be, again, it's not 2004. I mean, the, night, the nightmare scenario was would be some sort of unilateral Israeli action against Iran activating the entire Middle East. That's not going to happen now. What would the reaction be in the Middle East to an Israeli action against uh, Iran. It would probably a, a fall basket. along the, the Shia Sunni fault lines. 
un, in, in a way that I don't think anybody could have envisioned 20 years ago. Look, we know it is almost certainly the case that Israeli actions that fall far short of direct military action. Um, you know, uh, uh, penetrations, uh, uh, computer, um, you know, sort of worms, um, uh, targeted bombings, uh, stuff like that, have retarded the Iranian nuclear program possibly by as much as 10 years already and we don't know what they have what they have in their quiver the interesting thing is that 10 12 years ago when obama was negotiating with bb and obama hated bb more than life life itself because bb would go to him and say look i got to tell you something we can't let iran get a bomb we cannot let iran get a bomb and i'm going to have to do something if you're not going to do something and if i do something you're going to be blamed for doing something so why don't you do it you do it because we know that you can do it. We know you have bunker buster bombs. We know you have all this weapon. We know that you can survive it without any trouble. If I do it, we don't know that we have the capability to really pull it off, but I'm going to have no choice but to do it. And Obama really, really, really didn't like this conversation. He didn't like the idea that Bibi was telling him, I'm just crazy enough to do this, so maybe you should do it on your own. And he hated him like poison. He hated him like poison. Well, now we don't know what Israel's capable of. And I think we know pretty much that uh, whatever, whatever conversation uh, the, the, the new non-BB government is going to have with the United States probably won't involve this, this particular conversation. But I find it very hard to believe the things that I'm reading about in the paper about what's going on here in, in, in Vienna uh, aren't going to trigger a gigantic blowback from Democrats, by the way, um, uh, you know, ser serious senior Democrats who are not going to want the United States to be acknowledging that Iran can have a nuclear bomb. That was the whole fig leaf of the JCPOA is that Obama said they're not going to get a bomb. OK, the negotiation says after 10 years it will be legal for them to get a bomb. But we're, we have other provisions in place that will tie their hands so that they won't even try. So don't worry. It'll be 10 years from now. And then, you know, in 10 years, we could all be living on the moon. What the hell? I won't be president anymore. What do I care? But now we're basically going to have to acknowledge that they can get a bomb. And I, I, I hope don't... you're right. I hope you're right, John. I, I honestly, I don't see it. I think at this point, the Iran deal, that's the brand. I mean, I don't know how you're a Democrat and talk about, you know, foreign policy in this part of the world without acknowledging that this is not just kind of an incidental thing of what he signed for. It's the whole show. This is this is this is the kind of the, the main the only line of thinking that these people have. Uh, mm -hmm. And so will there be a few holdouts who are courageous enough to actually, you know, address reality? Sure. Uh, but for the most part, I expect more like, well, you know, here we are reversing Trump's belligerent autocratic attempts to destabilize the Middle East by talking to these nice, you know, the moderates in Iran. And you see this person, this Ayatollah is not like the other Ayatollah because he only wants to kill three quarters of the Jews. They'll come up with some ridiculous narrative. It will be, you know, overstated by by media and academia. And, and, and that'll be the end of that. They can't wean themselves off the JCPOA because... Obama made sure that there will be no other form of thinking. And, you know, since we're in Obama 2.0 right now, that's not going to go away. Okay. Few people have ever accused me of being Pollyanna-ish about this subject. So I'm really, I'm really <laughs> honored 
to have any achieved day. a level of optimism <laughs> that is totally again. You say the JCPO is the Democratic brand. Crushing morosity is, of course, the commentary podcast uh, brand, and you have just destroyed it. One visit to our podcast, Liel, and you have and that's it blown it up. So I'll anyway, see myself out. Thank you so much. It was so fantastic having you. We're going to have you again. Liel Leibovitz, uh, Tablet Zone. Uh, he's got a beautiful beard now. You can't see it. It's a, it's a, just a, just a, you know, as he turns himself into a patriarch before our very eyes. Uh, so uh, read Liel a tablet. Uh, we're going to try to get him back in the pages of commentary and listen to his unorthodox podcast. And for Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.